0: Good morning. We open up our Bibles. We're going to be in James 2. You know, we live in a world that's increasingly perilous. People are fearful throughout uh, the whole world. And uh, if you were to Google the 21st century dangers and fears, and you know what would be at the top of the list, don't you? I'm sure you know. That would be terrorism. Uh, How about nuclear holocaust? Cancer? Diseases? all the above, right, the murders, all the things that are going on in our world. And uh, it would be reason, humanly, to put fear in people's hearts, and it does. And with what has gone on in uh, Paris, and of course everybody's aware of that news and what happened in Africa this week and uh, uh, many other places all across the world, uh, down through the last couple of decades especially, we, uh, we've heard so much about um, attacks from... Um, Islam, and I think it's certainly been uh, a major contributor of the fear that is in our world today, uh, no doubt about it. If one doesn't know God and His sovereignty, I don't have an idea how they get through this world. Uh, they they really have no hope. They might have some hope. It's hope in what? I really don't know hope in the next day or the next uh, drink or next uh, drug or the next um, encounter uh with with people of the opposite sex or same sex and you go on and on the world is just spinning into oblivion you know if you have no hope now we know where it's going what it's about but we begin here today because of the real significance Uh, that is there, of dangers. Dangers are so increasingly perilous. But I really think they actually pale, and pale drastically when they are compared to the danger that is found in our James text that we look at today. The danger here is even more incredible. It's called the danger of false faith. And uh, it's so more important than any of all the other dangers, no matter what attacks may come upon people, this one is of eternal importance. And we know that this kind of danger, if people are deluded, will be sent to hell. That's how dangerous that is. So often in the Bible, we see true compared with false. And, you know, when we examine it in James' writings, we've already seen that in James one twenty-two. Therefore, putting... Um, excuse me. I think I'm in... Um, yeah. Putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, that's the true faith. And it's the word that is implanted. Uh, but as he goes on down, we see that he talks about don't be deluded or don't be deceived, right? As he talked about the, the, uh, the mirror. We need to look at what the real truth is. So at the end of verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And then in verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. And so we've seen that, and then we've seen uh, the danger of uh, favoritism and playing favorites with uh, what uh, may appeal to us from our flesh. Um, and then he, you know, he's, he's talking about deeds or works versus uh, true faith, a false faith versus a, a true faith. So there's a possibility of a danger of a, of a dead faith, a false faith, and that's most frightening. It's most frightening because in the very words of Jesus in Matthew 7, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a false faith. That's a faith that deceives as James has been uh, mentioning all along through here in uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. So uh, false faith we know does not produce good works and it does not produce righteous works. The absence of such works is really evident that um, because there are no works then there's also an absence of saving faith. And I think this is really vital. I think that we be clear on it, but that as we present the gospel, that we're very clear on presenting that matter um, of what true faith and false faith is. There's a kind of faith in Jesus Christ that actually doesn't save. And that sounds strange. You can say you can believe in Jesus Christ and still not have the, the, truth, the true faith. There are people who believe in God. They believe in Jesus Christ but not to the point of salvation. I mean, they believe everything there is about God. He's the Creator. They believe all the facts of that. And that Jesus even died on the cross for sins. Uh, but they have no commitment to Christ. So they, they manifest no changed life. There's nothing there, even though they say and they believe all the right things. That's, that's an incredible thing. And as we go along here today, and especially where it talks about demons, they know much more than we know today. Uh, The Lord was really concerned uh, about this, that people would be deceived, that he gave parables. He gave parables of the soils, if you'll remember. Um, And, of course, the wheat and the tares, right? Right. And so he's showing true and false. And it's almost like, you know, yeah, yeah, I've heard this so many times. In John 15, he talks about the uh, abiding in the vine. There's a true vine, and everything that's false will be cut off. And so, you know, intellectual belief, we know that is uh, is not enough. And James has given a series of tests all the way through here, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And now at his uh, end here today, it's the test of works. Test of works. So this is a a, a composite text, I believe. Uh, how we live, then, gives proof of who we are. And that's how we show uh, that faith. I, I believe that's a composite test in the epistle. How we live, what what our works are. Every other test is a, a is a righteous work, when whenever it's responded to properly. Uh, let's uh, arise as we started this worship out today. Arise, arise, right? Uh, in James chapter two, starting at verse fourteen and through twenty, we will get this that we're going at today. Show me your faith. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you say to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. you believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Let's pray. father rather a a somber text as we realize there can be people deceived thinking they're believers and they really are not lord that's why we have the word and we are to test ourselves and we are to realize that if we are trusting in christ and we are believing in in the bible we're believing his word and we know it's only the cross of christ And the Holy Spirit himself tells us that we are yours, then we are to take that as a blessed assurance. And yet there are some people who maybe question themselves or maybe have not questioned themselves. That's even a greater danger. But to realize that your word should wake us up and... and, and We want to make sure that we are clear as we present your gospel to the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, chapter 2, verse 14. We'll start with a, a false confession. This is a claim of faith. As he starts off with, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith? And he starts off with, brethren... And he's done that several times, doesn't he? I think that's really good because he's showing that uh he's compassionate with them. He sees people as his brethren. Um there are Jew- Jewish readers that he's writing to. Uh I think most of them probably are believers, but he knows there are people there that are professing to be believers and they're not. And so he, you know, he's identifying them uh, him with them them um that they have faith with the same way with him. Or is also identifying as Jewish brethren, and maybe they're not really truly Christians. So he says this. Okay, someone can say this. So these are the if-we-sayers. You know, if-we-sayers. They're the if-we-doers, then there's the if-we-sayers. This person does it verbally. He uh, just claims to be a Christian, but that doesn't mean he's saved. And, and of course, in First John, we get this a lot. If you turn... Close, closer to the end of the, the Bible here. In First John chapter 1, verse 6, it says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So there's an if-we-sayer. It's dealing with um, uh, fellowship with Christ. They're still walking in darkness. Verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. There he's talking to believers here. If we go around saying, hey, my sin is over. It's done. And it was done at the cross and therefore I have no more sin. I I don't sin anymore. I am complete. Um, Yes, there is perfection, they say. And that has been a theology in the body of Christ. But here it says you're deceiving yourselves if you say you do not sin. (laughs) That's our problem. We still battle with sin because of the flesh, right? Um... Chapter 2, verse 4, the one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Truth is not in him. So there's another, if we sayer. Somebody says they believe in him, but yet they don't keep his commandments. They're not obedient. And in verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walks. So we walk as Christ walks so that there is no confusion to ourselves or to others. And it's because that's what we want to do. Well, the one who, in uh, James, says, if someone says he has faith, okay, faith, and that doesn't necessarily refer to a genuine faith. It can be a genuine or, uh, in this case, uh, one that doesn't have genuine faith. All right? Um It's it's just like if you have a seed and if you plant it, it will necessarily, because of the life that is in it, it will grow into a a tree, into a plant. It will have fruit according to its kind. And that's genuine faith. It will always produce uh, works. And um, if we were to go back to James 1, verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. There's a test, a trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. So, um, they go through trials. They, they persevere through them. Uh, chapter 1, and verse 18, talks about God exercising His will, bringing us forth by the word of His truth, And we keep on going uh, to 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word. And uh, then 27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So if you have faith, look at what it produces. Here it's talking about orphans and widows. Or it's talking about going through trials. Or it's talking about um, dealing away with your anger, putting away the filthiness and the wickedness, right? And proving yourself um, doers of the word. So that's, that's the idea that uh, he has done all the way through. And I think one could immediately say, well, you know, um, that sounds different than Paul, because in Paul, he just talks about grace, right? And you, you might have been addressed this before, I don't know, but um, James sounds like a different kind of breed, it sounds like a different gospel. And there are denominations in the Christian faith, or I'll put that in quote. Uh, act, and really, you you know, you're saved by grace, right? What's that? Evangelicals. Evangelicals. will take works and put it along with faith. Mm-hmm. And you have to have those to be saved, right? I mean, uh, this is simple. We've done this many, many times. So therefore, uh, they would have a works-based religion, wouldn't they? And that's really what Paul argues against in Galatians because they were taking circumcision. They were taking all the... Um, ceremonial rituals and some of those things, adding those to the true faith or Christianity and saying that's faith, and that's why uh, we had to have a Reformation. It's by faith alone. Now we have faith alone. We say, "Well, well, Dennis, now you're talking about, but here's works. And so here's where the Roman Catholic Church comes in. And the Roman Catholic Church says, and they'll use this James text to say, you have to have these works to be saved. And you can see why there was a what a reformation mm-hmm. and that belief still goes on always has that's a works righteousness a works based religion wow. along with faith so it's faith plus you do this you do this you do this you do these seven sacraments along with believing and you'll uh, you go to purgatory and then somehow some way many years later go to heaven right and that's that's the heart of their belief and they will use james, and I've heard the debates um one was dr. Walter Martin, uh which was the original bible answer man and uh is our ceiling coming apart <laughs> flying down here. um and he debated a a top theologian of the Roman Catholic faith, and uh he was this guy was pretty sharp this Roman Catholic was. And of course, he used James and he went right to the heart of where we're at. And he's saying you must have these. And Walter Martin's argument is, but we're talking about salvation and accompanying it will be your works. And of course, that's what we would believe along with Walter Martin. But the Catholic theologian says, no, James says we have to have these works with our faith to be saved and you see the line of demarcation and that is representing honestly and fairly the Roman Catholic religion and that goes right against the heart of saved by grace through faith that's right. faith alone, grace alone all of that, the biblical aspect of, of faith and it is struck down with a works righteousness and so that's why we uh, you know, hold up high the reformation because um, and and we always have to be reforming, right? Always, each of our own lives. Uh, they didn't get it all back then, and we still haven't either. <laughs> and uh, we still work with that. But um, Paul was saying your works can never get you to God. James is saying your faith is deficient unless accompanied by works, and the two go. Hand in hand. And this is why Martin Luther actually had a problem with this book of James. And he had even stated one time that he didn't think that the James should have been in our Bibles as far as inspiration. The thing is, you would see from uh, Luther's writings that a faith always has works to go along with it. And that's really what James is saying. But he does hit at it very hard on that issue, and he keeps hitting works all the way through, doesn't he? And that's why James is uh, uh, attacked in, in that sense. So Paul is basically dealing with the judicial aspect of justification, and James has in mind the ethical dimension of justification. If you're justified, then you will do this. Uh, Paul often used the term works to actually uh, signify that that is an attempt to get some kind of favor and merit with God. And Paul is absolutely right. Uh, and James is saying, "But and the works will follow that. Uh, faith that is alone doesn't save. I think as Luther had actually said. Um... The good works that are prepared beforehand. Uh, Everybody knows Ephesians 2.8. And then it continues to verse 9 and then to verse 10. (laughs) Uh, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's all His work, not as a result of works, so that one may boast. And you say, see, there it is, works. For we are His workmanship. His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so this is what Walter Martin would have gone to as he debated with the Catholic theologian. And the answer is right there, isn't it? Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. No problem between James and Paul at all, is there? James, by the way, has already said we were born again of God by His will. And by his word, he stated that in chapter 1, if you remember that. We've seen election. He doesn't spend a lot of time on that, the sovereign grace of God. But that's what he started with. And so, uh, no problem at all. No disagreement, uh, Paul and James. Um, And that's why we have to pay careful uh, attention with context. We have to know the context. What is James writing about? Who's he writing to? What's it about? Get the basic gist of a book before one starts just going in there and ripping out whatever they want and saying, see there? They better know what he's talking about. They better know who Paul was addressing when he wrote, what he did, and what his motive was, and then what James is, or any kind of thing that we're dealing with. We Before we make a... Um, a doctrine in our own minds. Before we do that, we've got to look at other sections that present problems. They're not problems to God, but they're problems to us. We need to solve them. We have a New Testament text. We have an Old Testament text. and They seem to argue against each other. And we know that God can't do that. He's not going to say two things. He's saying one thing. Take the text put them together, and then see how they fit or who they are addressing and what they're addressing. So that's really the issue there. I think uh, this kind of text would be something, I think, that uh, somebody who is really having trouble with Christianity or uh, they don't even really know where they're at in it, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 is always one to go as it says, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. And there we have Paul. This is Paul saying, check yourself out. See where you're at in the faith. Don't you recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? So some people could have failed the test. And he says, "Be be careful with that. So, that is our part one. That's the false confession. The one who says, right? The one who says he has faith. Has no works in it. faith saving. And then he, he uses an illustration here. And that's what James does. You ever notice how he makes it so simple? It's just like what Jesus did all the time, as he used agriculture so often. Well, James here uses okay a situation that probably came about even in their own meetings where uh, it says in verse 15, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? What use is your faith? Even so, faith that has no works is dead being by itself. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. Sometimes I'm going, Lord, they already know this. I need to be reminded. <laughs> yeah, we need to always be reminded. You know, it's ever before us, isn't it? No, no matter where you turn in Scripture, it talks about false teachers. It talks about false faith. And, you know, we look at it and we go, okay, I, you know, okay, If you, you're all Christians. All right, fantastic. Then what we want to do is make sure that we bring this forth to the people who need to hear the true gospel, even though they think they already have the gospel. And so he that's what's happening. He uses this illustration, the lack of outer garments, warmth, protection. There are people that have that. Some choose to have that, and uh, they continue on with that. Uh, but here he's talking about people that actually you know, came to the church. Uh, they haven't even had a solitary meal during the day, maybe not even yesterday. Um, they, the clothes that they have are on their back, and, and they're all torn, and um, maybe they came to this assembly. And everybody scatters, congregation scatters, and all you have is this one person standing there, and then they they, they leave. There's one person there and says, Oh, hey, good luck. I uh, hope things go good with you. Hope uh, clothes and food, I hope that's taken care of by somebody down the road there. <laughs> uh, he does nothing, right, for that. He, he, he recognizes the need, but he has no sense of meeting that need. Uh, no mercy there. They're destitute. They're starving to death uh these people are. They're they're cold, they're hungry. It's a common situation back at that time and the time of James, and of course it can happen in our time too. And it could really happen down the road, who knows. Uh but no food for the day and uh really cold. Uh, be warmed, be filled. Uh, it, you do well uh, you know, uh when you say go on. Go in peace. Uh, that's the pious kind. That's what a Jew would have said. A common expression was uh, go in peace. Go in peace. God bless you. Hope you do well. I sure hope that uh, somebody can, can help you in your situation. Good good luck. Hope uh, you can find what you need, right? And that's what James hits at here. He says, okay, you have faith. What are you going to do with this person, right? If a person claims to have faith in Christ but his faith has not been accompanied by the works where there's not been any mercy, then the faith is dead. Boy, James must have seen this happening. Of course, he was the pastor of the first church of Jerusalem. And uh, believe me, there were a lot of people who were destitute. Um, But he he says here in uh, James in verse 17, um, even so, faith that has no works is dead being by itself. It's alone. It's a faith that is alone. And that's not a true faith. Uh, we have to turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, 17 and 18. And over, over, over and over and over and over in 1 John you get tests all the way through. You know, if we say, and then James says, if we do, or um, uh, Actually, John says that. You know, if we say, And then he says, if we confess our sins. If we say that we have no sin. And he says, if we confess our sins. So that's a doing, isn't it? Um, 1 John three seventeen and 18. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And there you have John saying the same thing as James. John was the apostle. James was the one who became a Christian after the resurrection. James is the brother, half-brother of our Lord, right? Uh, But they're saying the same thing. And over and over you'll see that uh, throughout Scripture. But I think John just is the same kind of guy. He's black and white. You know, boom, boom. Now there are... um, times where wisdom has to be used. And if you just went out and just threw everything out there, you know, um, and that person really is taking advantage of people, and that's what he does on purpose, well, then you you start to want to use wisdom. Still yet, you know, you, you don't want to turn your back on somebody, but whenever people use somebody and they're tricking them, you know, you don't want to be walked upon either. But a lot of times, there are times when you know you're being walked upon, but that person is still in need. Uh, but you sure, uh, if you get the opportunity to share something physically with them, you sure want to get the spiritual truth to them. That's ultimately what it is, right? But uh, you, So you can't separate true faith from good deeds, can we? They, they go together. Uh, a fruit on a tree tells you what the, the tree is. Uh, so uh, doing good deeds, it's a sign that a person has life in Christ and who they are. So that's uh, number two. Now we go to uh, useless faith. <laughs> It sounds like the same thing, doesn't it? What do we have here? What what kind of faith did he start with? Uh, A false confession uh, or false faith? How about a dead faith and now a useless faith? And so we go through James 2. And at verse 18, uh, and he already knows what somebody might say. He says, okay, yeah, but someone may well say you have faith. And here's what, you know, James can be saying, you have faith, I have works, um, show me your faith without your works. Now, what he's just done is somebody might have an orthodoxy and they might turn the table a little bit and say, hey, I have, uh, I have theologically got the Bible down, I've been to seminary, I have studied for 50 years and, (laughs) you know, I have faith. Well, Great. Well, how does that one demonstrate their faith? And that's why James said, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith with my works, right? Um, there's a challenge there. I don't think anybody can show their faith without works. That's And that's what he really hits on. James says on their hand, I'll show you the reality of my faith by my living by my what? By my works. And so so it'd be impossible for somebody to have true faith and never to have any kind of works. You know that? And that's where he gets them at. I think it's just like um now he's getting ready to stick the knife in. In case they didn't get that you know, and he's using different illustrations. Have you seen this? It's like, yeah, we got it. I could have done just uh, an introduction, we all would have agreed and we said, Have a nice day. See you guys Tuesday. Yeah, right? And um that could be it because we, we know this. But we need to be reminded we need to know it more, don't we? Matter of fact, we need to be convicted. Uh not here to doubt your faith. That's not the uh the point. But a Jew here would acknowledge that statement that he just made as he gives a scripture to them, basically. They know this. They did it every day. If you believe that God is one, if you believe that God is one, and they would say, well, most certainly, they theologically had this down. They did it every day. This is the Shema. Matter of fact, if you were really holy, you did it three times a day. The Shema is Deuteronomy 6.4. Does that sound familiar? Deuteronomy. And it was the law. And it was something every Jew would have done. And they would not have denied it, even if they kind of forgot to do it that day. This is what every Jew does. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Now they could use that against a Christian and say, we only believe in one God. You believe in three. Uh-huh. They got us, don't they? That's proper. That's not proper English. <laughs> uh, the Lord is one. Uh you ever seen a cluster of grapes? There are a lot of grapes in there, but it's one cluster. It's one bunch. <coughs> That is not an argument against the Trinity. But they said it every day. And we too believe that there's only one God. But there are three persons in that God. And if we were to check all of Scripture, and even if you had the Old Old Testament alone, you would see a triune God there. Even in Genesis chapter (laughs) 1. But yeah, we have the we there, don't we? So there's a plurality of persons even though there's only singular God, right? We we as Christians, we hold that dearly. That's orthodox for a Christian. Um, but let's say this Jew here is a Christian and he still believes in that Shema, which we do too. You believe that God is one. You do well. Here's, boom! <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. This is an orthodox, demonic faith. His point is is that any demon that you pick out here, you have to acknowledge that they have theology. A demon would have grand theology and would have more theology than any of us here today. <laughs> That's right. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Jonathan Edwards had such good points to make on this. I'm going to take a couple of paragraphs, if that's okay, to read this, because, boy, it stuck out at me how much I really don't know, and the demons who are going to be judged and sent to the lake of fire know so much more than I do. Why is that? Because they were with God, worshipping Him, they don't have a second chance. There is no grace to those lost ones. But there is to humans. Do you find that rather interesting? Why is that? I can't answer. Sovereignty of God. Okay, now Jonathan Edwards preached this sermon. I'm just taking out a couple of um, paragraphs. Now he's going to talk about their extraordinary knowledge. I'll read this. Thus, the devil has undoubtedly a great degree of speculative knowledge in divinity. Having been, as it were, educated in the best divinity school in the universe, the heaven of heavens, he must needs have such an extensive and accurate knowledge concerning the nature and attributes of God, as we, as worms of the dust in our present state, are not capable of. And he must have a far more extensive knowledge of the works of God as the work of creation in particular. For he was a spectator of the creation of this visible world. And he must have a very great knowledge of God's works of providence. He has been a spectator of the series of these works from the beginning. He has seen how God has governed the, word, the world in all ages. He must have a great degree of knowledge concerning Jesus Christ as the Savior of men and the nature and method of the work of redemption and the wonderful wisdom of God in his contrivance. We can honestly say that there is no one so orthodox in understanding as the devil. He knows these things to be true, yet he radically opposes God in all of his thoughts and actions. Just because a person has a good theology does not mean that he has been saved. That is the warning James offers. Edwards went on to add, the devil is orthodox in his faith. He believes the true scheme of doctrine. He is no deist, a Socinian, an Arian, Pelagian, or antinomian. The articles of his faith are all sound and in them he is thoroughly established. Yet none of his offers evidence of saving faith. So, Edwards, I thought, really hit it on the head and to to know this in his head. How much do they they know? The devil knows. Uh, And like I said, he's not part of any cult. The demons start that. If one really wants to chase religion, they can get them all different kind of routes. And if they happen to favor Christianity, boy, he can work right. He says, that's fine. I can work in that. Matter of fact, I love that. He even likes that the best. If you can get them into believing things that are... Seemingly right, and some of the things are actually right, but yet it's not here. He will deceive them that way. He's a master of deception. What an intelligent mind for us to think that we can even match the devil is a foolish thought. We have not the mind of the devil's. But we do have the truth of the Word of God, and we have Christ residing in our hearts with the Holy Spirit, which the devil does not have. And that is why we win. Amen. The demons shudder. We have no reason to be fearful. As I started this message out, fear is escalating. Just turn on the TV. Fear, fear, fear. fear—it's just going to escalate more. There's good reason for it if you don't know Christ. And then on the other hand, you can say God's timing is marching on. You know, it's going to get worse, and when He comes back, He's going to punish all unbelief. The demons—they go one better than than the religious phonies that we have of our time. They shudder, they shake, they're in great fear. It means to bristle. It means to have your hair standing upon your head. Now, it's not that demons have hairs because they have no bodies unless they take over a body. No demon has ever exercised saving faith. Even conviction of sin is not evidence of saving faith. Somebody can have sin or even say it and it's still not evidence. Although it's a good thing that all those who confess their sins are believers, right? Um They're more responsive than the one who has a mere intellectual faith. The problem is that demons cannot repent. They are not given that gift. We have been given the gift of true repentance. We have been given the gift of true faith. They have no change of heart. They know so much better than we do. And they can't change. No, ability to change. no ability. They have no change of will or behavior whatsoever. And here, James says, shooting well, the demons also believe and shudder. <laughs> Boom. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow? And, and when he says foolish fellow, he's talking about a guy that's really an unbeliever here. He's not talking to Christians. This is one who has faith. You believe in Jesus. Well, you do well, but you don't have anything to back it up. Jesus goes to Jerusalem the first time. The people believe in him. They he says they believe in him. That's what John writes. They believed in Jesus. You say, well, isn't that all you have to do? Is just believe in Jesus? They believed in Jesus, but Jesus knew their. They saw his miracles. That was easy to believe. That was outwardly. But there was an inward work that was not there. Matter of fact, men do not shudder. Look in Romans 3.18. Demons shudder because they know. You know how arrogant (laughs) wicked men are? They don't shudder. And we're talking about the fear of God here, really. Really? There is no fear of God before their eyes. From verse 11 or 10 through verse 18 is the most overwhelming passage in all the Bible to show the depravity of man as it borrows every verse there right out of the Old Testament. And the Jew has been counting on their being Jewish, their heritage. They have the Bible. They have the oracles. And Paul says, okay, I'll just take right out of what you know. And boom. And he ends with, you know, he starts with, there's none righteous. No, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. You get the idea? And we drop down 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the problem. Because if we go to um, Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's where it starts. God gives us a gift of fear, fearing Him. We have no reason to fear anything else. Nothing else. Only Him. God-fearers. Are you a God-fearer? It's a good thing if somebody comes up with, how oh, do you hear about? you hear about all the jihad? Do you hear about all the things going on?" And say, "Hey, you know what? I fear not that. I'm a God fearer." At the end here of our James. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? There's our useless. It's useless. Now, he uses a different word for, for dead this time here. Uh, that he used in verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Right? Dead. There's, uh, dead as, you know, there's no life in it. Here, it's basically saying the same thing, only a different picture. He uses a different word for dead. It's useless. He uses the word arga, and it means fruitless. There's no fruit on it. Jesus used that in uh, John 15. You know, the the false fruit. I always picture... and an artificial fake (laughs) apple tree with the fake apples on it, you know, plastic, and it looks really cool. Sometimes some of those things are really real looking. And you have to go up to them and you touch them. And I have to admit, sometimes I touch them going, is this thing real? (laughs) I said, I don't know. You know, And, and that's what Jesus was talking about. He knows, boom, he cuts them off. And even our our works, you know, he cuts off that are not of God. It can also mean that. But I think um, he's talking about people who uh, would be like this. Um, He's saying you have no fruit. You're destitute just like a dead tree. Uh, You're like a dead corpse. You're no better than a dead seed. You know, a dead root. A dead nerve. A dead engine. You know, in a car. It's dead. It's dead. It It can't do anything. There's no life to it. It's a dead faith. And what does a prophet? Absolutely nothing. What use is it he started off with, my brethren? And so evidently that's what they had. Um, sure can have an appearance of orthodoxy. Some you can see from a mile away, and you know that they're just running a gamut, you know. And then there are others who, men, you know, they even they have themselves convinced that they are, because they do such and such. They may think, but it's really there's no really doing by the work of God in them. And uh, so, you know, that's that's what the scariness of it is if one is an imposter, the lack of fruit in their character, and it can prove that their person is really uh, unsaved. I think of Hebrews, and we're just finishing this right on down here, uh, in Hebrews 6. And this is the text that... I personally, I think I've had the most, I guess, uh, debate from from uh, Christians who believe you can lose your salvation. And here's another point again. Here's where, what is the book of Hebrews about? Who wrote it now, we don't necessarily know who wrote it. Some people do some don't. not going to get into that, but the fact of the matter is is that what God wrote it?, <laughs> I got out of that one. We know God wrote that, but who's he writing to? He's writing to Jewish people who confessed professed to be Christians and yet they were doing what they were like James was talking about. They hadn't crossed all over the w- the way. They really hadn't truly trusted in the sacrifice of Christ. They're relying on on maybe their religious works, who knows, but in in Hebrews he says, "You know what? Here's the mark of a true Christian. Here's the mark of one who's not." And he's going to go through all that to these Jewish people. When you get to Hebrews 6, it sounds very alarming and it sounds like you can lose your salvation and you might have ha- had to go to this text before and if you haven't you will because you're going to talk to somebody somewhere online that's saying you can lose your salvation and they can be <coughs> committed to the word of god i mean they can be truly dearly christians i mean it and they say i know that you're saved by grace but you can still make a decision to turn your back on Christ and lose it. Hebrews 6, verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified themselves, the Son of God, and put Him to open shame. Wow! Now that is tough to deal with. Yeah, I've always believed in eternal security, and I still do, but I'm not so sure how to handle this text, right? Well, you notice that they taste, they were enlightened, they were tasted, uh, they were partakers; they tasted the good word. they fell away. Those are key words. Say, what are those meaning? This looks like this disagrees with Paul and the whole thing where you know eternal security john ten uh you know what do I do with this it's a judas. Mm-hmm. judas that's that's the whole answer. This is the guy was Judas ever saved no no, he, no, he was not. But boy, he was sure around it. Did he ever taste it? Did he ever hear the Word of God? Was he enlightened? Was he a partaker? Oh boy, yeah. Partaker of the Holy Spirit? That doesn't mean that you have the Holy Spirit living in you, but you see the power of the Holy Spirit around you. You've gone to uh, church at that time. You went to the meetings, the assemblies, and you saw the power of God working there. And and so therefore, um, you know, you, you were a part of all this. You heard it, and you, you, you tasted it, and so people will use that. You say, "Well, we still have to use the text." So you go, you can go to Romans eight, whole book, a Rom- chapter of Romans eight is all about eternal security. You get to the end, but you know what? You don't even have to go that far. Just keep reading Hebrews six. Yes. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, there's fruit useful to those for whose sake it is also till it receives a blessing from God. You have the soil, the rain comes, soaks down in it, you get blessing, right? And then he goes, boom. But, and these are the if we sayers, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it is what? Worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned up. He just talked about what Jesus said in, in all the parables and, and uh, John 15, I abiding... Uh, but you say, "Ah you know, yeah, but what if they make themselves thorns and thistles again? <laughs> well, the thing is, they don't understand how God saves and how how He keeps uh and look at verse nine. this is such a key. all I have to do is just keep reading, read the book, read the chapter, please, read the rest of the Bible because God doesn't have a problem with this. you do, you have to examine it and quit embracing your uh Pentecostal beliefs. (laughs) If it's Pentecostal, okay, and if it believes in, uh, you know, Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins, and uh, we have eternal life, then, hey, that's good, but Pentecostals, uh, anyone I've ever met, never have believed in eternal security. So there I said it, right? Okay, why is it? Because they've got to keep them, it's a works-based thing. You've got to keep yourself. See, that's the danger of that. Do they believe in Calvinism? Do they believe in Reformed theology? No. They're Arminian. (laughs) Look at this. He's been talking, okay. Here they are. And then he says, okay, now, Christians, but beloved, verse 9, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. Remember in verse 4, the things that accompanied salvation, tasting, the partakers of the Holy Spirit, enlightened, they taste, right? Those accompany salvation. Though we're speaking in this way, he says, you believers, listen. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Okay, I'm talking to you, you believers. And we desire, do you see? But beloved, we are convinced and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope. To you Christians, I want you to have full assurance. Blessed assurance. I want you to have that full assurance. So he keeps encouraging them on. But to the other group, he doesn't want them to have assurance. So that you will not be sluggish. You can be sluggish as a Christian, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay? That's a believer. For when God made the promise to Abraham, so he goes on and and, um, talks about Abraham, and he ends uh, with... Verse 19, this hope we have, we, Christians, as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, what's a priest do? He ever liveth to make intercession. We sang that this morning, too. According to the order of Melchizedek. That gets into another, you know. uh, we, we, we. But look back in verse 4. For in the case of those who have the heavenly gift, been made partakers, and have tasted those, those who fell away, they, they walk back. And then he says, okay, you have the ground, you have the rain that gets on it, soaks in, there's vegetation. The other ones, all there are, are thorns and thistles and briars, and look what it yields. But we, they, we, explain that to your Pentecostal friend who believes you can lose in salvation. Say, do you actually believe in the book of Hebrews? You want to go that way? Let's go with it. And they'll, they will have other texts. They can go with Hebrews if they know it. I can guarantee you they will use Hebrews because all over this he has tests. Just like John has tests, James has tests. And in here, it sounds really brutal because here he says that uh, in, in, in 6, Impossible knew them again to repentance. They... Um, they crucified themselves, the Son of God. By the way, if you really believed in losing salvation, why do you go after that one who turned his back on God? If they you can say, "Well, they lost their salvation," but we invite them to come to Christ and it says back again, and it says, "Here, it's impossible again to renew them into repentance." If they're going to take it that way, they better follow through with it, because now they're lost forever and they can't come back now. <laughs> they're in problem. They have problems, but you can look in every chapter here. And see the proving of Jesus Christ and trusting in him. And that's what the problem was with the Jew. Now that we've done James, and we've now done Hebrews, <laughs> uh, it is time to end today. I'm sorry. Does that help defend it there, though? If, if you need that at some time, because I guarantee you will. You're going to run into somebody who's really sharp. They've read Hebrews. only problem is they don't know Hebrews. Um, James' point is not that believing in sound doctrine is unimportant. He's not stressing this the, the doctrine. He, he's already, you know, been saying that. But believing sound doctrine alone is insufficient for salvation. Genuine saving faith is always connected with the new birth. Something has happened. There will be a life of good deeds. Some tenfold, some twentyfold, some thirtyfold, fortyfold, fifty, and on up. Right. To sum it up, James is saying this: genuine saving faith necessarily, it is necessary to result in a life of good works but a false faith does not Father thank you for this good word thank you for reminding us here of false faith and true faith thank you for helping us interpret a passage that has actually been controversial faith plus works Lord, we we understand because your Holy Spirit has not only enlightened us, he does enlighten us, but further he convinces us in our heart as we read your word, as we study it, as we ponder on it, think on it, then as we share it with each other. And Lord, uh, in this time of perilous times, may we be able to be ones who can offer hope. And that's really what this whole message really points to. That we are to offer the hope in Christ. And that is the best work that can be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.